Good morning, church. Children, you've been patient. You can go to Children's Church. Like Mrs. Emmett's out there waiting for you. Church, also be in prayer about VBS. We're, uh, we're, we're working on it. We're planning on doing it. It's the second full week of July. I believe it's the 11th through the 15th. So soon you'll be seeing a table with uh, sign-up uh, options for serving and volunteering. And this is one of those things where uh, all hands on deck. We need everyone's help. And so uh, be praying now about how God would use you during that week. Uh, it's been three years since we've done VBS. And VBS is uh, a tremendous uh, ministry to our community. Just last week, a message came in to our church Facebook page from a mom in the community asking, are, are you doing VBS this year? Uh, we love VBS. You know, we hope you are. And so uh, there's people out in the community already asking us, are we going to do it again? And we haven't done it for three years. And uh, there's still people who uh, that ministry has made an impact on and an impression on. So be praying about that. All right. Getting to the word today. Here's a question to start us off. Have you ever been discouraged in ministry? Maybe it's because of the success of another ministry has caused you to look at yourself as a failure. Maybe it's another person who just experiences more evangelistic fruit in their lives as they share the gospel with others. And you think to yourself, why can't I do that? Why don't I see more people coming to Jesus in my own life? Or maybe it's uh, you serve in a particular ministry, or maybe you lead a ministry, and you look at another ministry in the church, and you think, wow, that'd be nice if we could fill those classrooms or if we could get more people in that gym. Or maybe it's another church. You drive by on the way here, and their parking lot just looks more full than ours, and you think, what are we doing wrong? Why can't we do that? If we're honest, our flesh can creep in during these times and, and jealousy can take root when we hear of ministry success of others and we begin to, to question, are we doing this right? What's wrong with me? Uh, do we need to adopt different methods or strategies? Do we need to do things more like other people? In our passage today, some of John the Baptist's disciples develop some of, the, some of this ministry envy I'm describing, and they, they bring this concern to John. John, what are you going to think? What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? And what can we learn from it today? Let's dive into God's Word together to see how John deals with this news from his disciples. Grab your Bibles Turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. If you don't have a pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, use one of our pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, period, then take that home with you as our gift to you. And I'd like to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as I read God's word. Follow along with me once you're there.
after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anian near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we ask for your help. May your spirit quicken our hearts and open our eyes that we may see the treasure before us. Jesus, we thank you for your work in coming from above to minister and to give your life as a ransom for all. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your presence here among us in this moment. Spirit, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. And help us to be more like Jesus today. Because we've spent time together in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. John's response and really his attitude are, are a good example. It's a good model for us to keep in mind when we think about our place and our role in ministry. And really, these last words that we hear from John in this gospel are in verse 30. And they function as a hinge that connects the two halves of this passage together. John summarizes his response to the, the jealousy of his disciples by saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. Today we're 
We're going to contrast the person of John with the person of Jesus and learn why Jesus must increase and why John and we must decrease. So that will form the, the two main points of this sermon, and I'll tie everything together at the end with a point of application. But first, let's consider the humility of John. We've already observed in in a recent sermon how John was a humble witness. But here we get a closer look. There's four things I want to point out to you that John mentions here that keep him humble and should keep us humble as well. And the first thing is God's sovereignty. He acknowledges God's sovereignty. First, John says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from from heaven. Here, John, he's acknowledging God's sovereignty in his life and in his ministry. Indeed, everything he has is a gift from God. It's been given from above. Another example of this is in Matthew 16, when, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus calls him blessed because that knowledge was revealed to him, not by flesh and blood, Jesus says, but by his Father in heaven. Even that piece of knowledge that that Peter confessed was given to him from above. This reality must keep us humble too. Maybe you're a person who knows a lot of things about the Bible. Don't let that puff you up. Because whatever knowledge you have, it was given to you. It was given to you. Or in Acts 16, we see that uh, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear what Paul was saying, and she believed. Even, Even our very salvation must not puff us up because you're not a Christian because you're smarter or more clever than anyone else. It's not that you're superior intellect enabled you to solve this puzzle and that you were more determined. The Bible teaches that as it relates to salvation, you are blind, you are deaf, and you you are even dead. And so even that we cannot boast in. The Apostle Paul writes to the boastful Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? A caution is in order here. Just because the fruit or the results of a ministry are given by God, this is not an excuse to be lazy and to blame the results on God. But what it does mean is that whatever the results of our ministry efforts, we see God's hand in them. And this will keep us from being jealous of another ministry through whom, for whatever reason, God chose to work in a particular way by doing something different that maybe he's not doing in your life or, uh, or in the life of a ministry you're involved in. There's great freedom in this. There's freedom from the comparison trap. When you understand this, that all spiritual insight and growth comes from God, any task, no matter the results, if it's done for the Lord, it's a great work. It's a great work. 
I was reminded of the ministry of Jeremiah. What a job he was given to prophesy to the people. And, and God even told him, he said, by the way, you know, I, I want you to do this, to bring this message to the people. And uh, just so you know, no one's going to listen to you. How would you like that assignment? But he was faithful and he did it. And so maybe you're not seeing the fruit you want to see in your life or in your ministries. But just continue to be, to, to persevere in faithfulness. And God will use you. Maybe not in the way that you want to be used or expect to be used, but he will use you. The next thing here is John's self-awareness. A second thing that kept John humble was his self-awareness. He says in verse 28, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. John knew who he was not. He was not the Christ. He was not the main attraction. He was not the star of the show. Consider how many ministries today are built around big personalities. And sadly, this happens. There have been many, uh, quote-unquote, celebrity pastors or ministry leaders uh, who at at some point in their ministries, they have a, a moral failure. This doesn't happen all the time, but it does. And then what happens is their entire ministry collapses like a house of cards and falls to the ground. Church, we can't build on a personality. We can't build on a person. We can't build on a pastor. If something other than Jesus, whether it's a person or a program or an event, if something other than Jesus is the main event or the main attraction in our ministry or in our church, then we need to repent. And this is a caution for us as we move forward and as we begin to do more. We want to do more. We want to do more to bring glory to Jesus and to lift him up, not ourselves. Because it's not about us, and it never should be about us. Paul encountered this again with the Corinthian church. They were playing favorites with various teachers, and Paul writes to them, this is how you are to regard us, not as celebrities, but as servants, as stewards, he calls himself. We're stewards and servants. It does not belong to us. We're caretakers. So know your place, like John. It's not about you. The epic story of God unfolding throughout human history, you are not the lead actor. You're a supporting role. And knowing this will keep you humble. The next thing John does here is he He keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. In verse 29, he identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom and Jesus as the bridegroom. I mean, think about a wedding. I just did a wedding uh, last week. The focus is not on the friend. The focus is on the bridegroom. John rejoices when he hears Jesus' voice. He lives to put as much attention on Jesus as he can. When a great missionary to India, William Carey, when he lay dying on his sickbed, the story goes that he turned to a friend and he says to his friend, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. 
I desire that Christ alone may be magnified. Do you live to be in the limelight or to reflect it onto Jesus? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and it will make you humble. And the last thing here, John's joy, his greatest joy, was to bring other people to Jesus. Now this is an implied thing in our text here, but one of the responsibilities of the friend was to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And so when John hears his voice as the friend, he rejoices. He rejoices because he knows that he has fulfilled his duty. He's brought the bride to the bridegroom. And it fills him with such great joy. And we should rejoice in that regardless of whether we ourselves are bringing people to Jesus or whether we hear of others bringing people to Jesus we rejoice in that. I was talking with someone recently sharing about how a person had recently put their trust in Jesus and this person didn't even know this other person but their eyes just began to tear up with joy just at the thought of someone coming to Jesus. Church, is that our joy? Do we celebrate when people come to Jesus whether God used us to do that or not? John says, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus' ministry is growing, and more and more people are going to see Jesus. And this just fills John with such great joy. It's not a threat to him or his pride. It's what he was made for. So it's not a threat. This is one of the reasons why just recently uh, they've, they've uh, moved on from our church, but we have the Fusion Church here with us. And that was not uh, a competition. We serve the same Jesus and we preach the same gospel. So when they didn't have a place to meet because of the, the movie theaters being shut down, that's where they were meeting, they had no building, we were happy to open our doors to them. And we rejoiced with them when God blessed their ministry. We weren't in competition we're happy when other ministries succeed because they're bringing people to Jesus just like we're trying to bring people to Jesus. And another reason we're not in competition with other gospel-focused churches is because, get this church, 27,000 people live in just a three-mile radius of this church. Can you believe that? 27,000 people live in a three-mile radius of this church. There are no shortages of people who need the gospel right around us. Lord willing, if we saw a great revival in our area, there would not be enough seats in all the gospel-preaching churches in our county to, to have, have them all. We need more churches, church. If we're going to reach all the people in this community... We need more churches, not less. And we're not in competition with other churches. There are plenty of people who need Jesus. So John must decrease because God sovereignly gave him all he had. There was no room for boasting. He was self-aware. He knew his place. He wasn't the star of the show. He kept his eyes on Jesus. And he rejoiced when people came to Jesus. And so should we, church. We must decrease. Jesus must increase. Amen? Now let's shift gears here. 
the increase of Jesus. This is the back half of our passage here. I'm going to give you three, re- three reasons why Jesus must increase. And the first is that he's from God. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus comes to us from heaven itself. And the most that anyone who could say that came before Jesus is that God sent them. Think about the prophets or even John the Baptist himself. They were sent by God. But only Jesus was sent from God. From heaven itself, Jesus came. And this is a major emphasis in John's gospel. He records 23 separate times where Jesus says that the Father sent him. This is not a feature of the other gospels. Not like it is in John. And in the second half of John's gospel, there's a shift. Whereas Jesus draws closer to the cross, he starts talking not only about how he was sent from the Father, sent from above, sent from heaven, but that he's going to return. He's going to return back to the Father and back to heaven. None of the other gospels do this. And John wants to make this clear to us that where he came from is unlike anyone who came before him. He came from heaven itself. But the fact that Jesus comes from God is significant because he alone has first-hand information from above. His message is not hearsay. It's not second-hand information. It's direct information. It comes directly from the source. John the Baptist was called a witness, but verse 32 identifies Jesus also as a witness, as the ultimate witness, because he testifies to what he has seen and heard in the very throne room of God. There's no other source to get it more directly than from Jesus. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is the best way to know God because he comes from heaven itself. The other thing here is that Jesus was was not just uh, from God, but he is full of God. He must increase because he's full of God. Verse 34, we read that God gave the Spirit to Jesus without measure. Without measure. As Christians, we've also been given the Spirit, but the difference is that Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. Paul says in Ephesians 4-7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But that's not how it is with Jesus. We've been given the Spirit in a measured way, but for Jesus... As much of the Spirit as there is, he has it. Infinitely. God communicates, he communes, he imparts, he gives the Spirit to Jesus infinitely. He must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. There is no one who has been as empowered by the Spirit as Jesus, therefore he must increase. And the third thing here is that Jesus acts as God. There's two parts of this. First, he speaks as God. Because he comes from God and has been given the full measure of the Spirit, he utters the very 
words of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. God spoke through the prophets of old, but they could only ever point beyond themselves to someone higher, to a destination far down the road. But Jesus never did this because Jesus was the, definition, the destination. Jesus is the destination. He doesn't point to anyone else outside of himself. He is the destination. Luke 4.32 tells us that Jesus' teaching was unlike anyone before him because the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority, unlike anyone who ever came before him. Now, I haven't made a big deal out of this until now, but I, as I've been preaching these sermons, I keep thinking, oh, I want to talk about this, but it wasn't the right time. But now's the time. In the first three chapters of John, we see something really special and unique. At the end of John chapter 1, when Jesus was talking to Nathaniel, he used this, he uses this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. He does this many times, but, but this is a feature, again, that John uh, includes in his gospel that's not in the other gospels. This double, truly, truly. This is literally saying, amen and amen. It was a way of giving credibility to the truthfulness of someone's teaching. But here's the thing. This was usually only done in the synagogues, after a teacher would, would teach or speak or uh, give a message, and the other rabbis present at the end of the message would affirm it by saying, Amen, Amen, the double Amen. But here, Jesus is saying this about his own teaching on the front end. He's saying it before he says anything else. He doesn't leave room for others to judge his teaching because his teaching comes from God and it just must be received. So Jesus does something no one else has done before him by using this truly, truly before whatever it is that he was saying as a way to say this is, this is true and this is from God. And then the last way that he acts as God is he rules as God. In verse 31, we're told that he is above all because he comes from above. And in verse 35, we learn that God has given him all things into his hand. And this means that he's the rightful ruler of all things. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let that sink in. The reason John tells us this is to further reveal the glory of Jesus. This is why he must increase because of his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this shows us our need to receive from him grace upon grace. This is our need.
our need is to receive Jesus' testimony, to repent and believe that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and gives eternal life. John presents Jesus here as the great divide. This is our last point for, uh, for this morning. Jesus is the eternal divide. You've probably heard of the continental divide in North America. It's a chain of north-south running um, a mountain range. And, and the unique thing about this continental divide is that when uh, precipitation falls upon it, whether it be rain or snow or melting snow, whatever side that precipitation falls on, on that, on that uh, continental divide, determines where that moisture will end up. If it falls on the, on the west side, it'll flow to the west, and its destination will be the Pacific Ocean. But if it falls on the east side, it flows to the east, and it will end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And so that's the continental divide. Jesus is the eternal divide. How you respond to his testimony will determine whether or not you have eternal life or not. He's the eternal divide. If you don't receive his testimony, you make God a liar, and you will not see life. If you receive his testimony, you set your seal to this, that God is true, and he gives you eternal life. John puts it this way in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is the great eternal divide. Where do you fall? Where do you fall? Do you believe his testimony or not? Whatever you determine about Jesus' testimony will determine whether you have life or not. And so I invite you, come to Jesus today. If you've not yet received his testimony, today's the day for you. Receive his testimony. Believe in the Son who took your place on the cross and died and rose again to take away your sin and to give you eternal life. Believe in him today. Come to Jesus today. Come see me after the service. Talk to a friend who brought you. We'd like nothing more than to help you to know Jesus because that's our joy. That's our joy, church, to bring others to Jesus. So if you're here and you need to come to Jesus today, uh, that is our joy. Come find us. Come talk with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the example of John the Baptist's humility. Thank you for the insight that you gave him, that he must decrease and that Jesus must increase. We thank you, Jesus, that you are, that you are God, that you're, you speak the very words of God. There's nowhere to which we can go to get more direct revelation from God than to you, Jesus. We thank you that we have it in, in sufficient form in our Bibles. We thank you, Jesus, that you are above all, that you rule over all, that all things have been given into your hands. So, so by all means, Jesus, may you be lifted up in our hearts and in our church. 
May we decrease and you increase. Father, help us as a church who seeks to bring this news to the community around it. There are many in our community who are blind and deaf and even dead spiritually who need you, Jesus. May we share in the delight of the bridegroom by bringing others to you. We love you, Jesus. Use us. May we be your humble servants, stewards, as Paul called himself. May we be your humble stewards, doing what you've given us to do. May we be faithful to share the gospel and to love our neighbors. And Lord, we pray for fruit. We want to see revival in this community, in this area. Lord, 27,000 people. That's a lot of people. We don't have that many seats here. Father, we pray for more churches. We pray for more gospel-centered churches to come into our area. That people would hear, that more and more people would hear the life-giving news of Jesus. Use us, Lord, as your humble servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.